the present-day conception of evolution by b b warfield this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org there seems to be an impression abroad that the adherents of the doctrine of evolution have hopelessly fallen out amongst themselves and threatened to destroy by internecine conflict the hold which this doctrine has obtained upon scientific thought this impression is an erroneous one evolutionists do differ gravely from one another on such subordinate matters as the causes of variation the classes of variation which may be preserved by heredity and the selective factors at work in the gradual moulding of organic forms in particular two strongly marked parties have emerged among them differing radically upon these subordinate matters one of these led by professor weismann holds that all hereditable variations are congenital and purely fortuitous and that natural selection acting upon these fortuitous congenital differences gradually moulds the successive organisms into better and better harmony with their environment the other party to which probably the majority of evolutionists give in their adhesion holds that variation is strongly stimulated by use and disuse of organs that such acquired qualities are hereditary and that thus natural selection has not merely a body of purely fortuitous variations but a series of definitely adaptive changes to work upon the difference between these two forms of the theory of evolution is not a small one but it is obviously not a difference fundamental to the conception of evolution itself but one which has reference only to the modes of its working evolutionists appear to be entirely and even increasingly at one in their fundamental conception of the doctrine we have lately been led to observe this in an interesting way by the circumstance of the appearance in a single issue of a quarterly journal of two general papers on evolutionary philosophy by such representative evolutionists as professor joseph leconte of the university of california and professor e d cope of philadelphia possibly no two american workers could be brought together who would more fairly represent the conceptions which really rule among evolutionary thinkers both have been decidedly committed to this scheme of thought from the beginning and have shown themselves leaders among their fellows yet they stand very far apart in many respects professor leconte has devoted much consideration to the religious bearings of this new philosophy while professor cope has spent his strength in purely scientific investigations in then where they meet so-called christian evolution meets with so-called purely scientific evolution so that their agreements will register for us what may be fairly looked upon as the common ground upon which evolutionary thinkers meet to-day the first thing that is apt to strike the reader of the two papers is the absolute unity of the two writers in their conception of what evolution is each gives a formal definition of evolution and the two definitions read like the product of a single pen professor cope says the doctrine of evolution may be defined as the teaching which holds that creation has been and is accomplished by the agencies of the energies which are intrinsic in the evolving matter and without the interference of agencies which are external to it professor leconte says evolution may be defined as continuous progressive change according to certain laws and by means of resident forces i e by natural forces residing in the thing evolving in brief each alike conceives evolution as a doctrine of self-creation as over against all conceptions of creation by powers forces or agents intruding into nature from without evolution is conceived by them as a doctrine of creation by the energies and forces of nature itself 
the emphasis in both cases is placed on the contention that the forces operative in the process are intrinsic or resident in the thing evolving professor leconte still further accentuates this by the added definition i e by natural forces residing in the thing evolving professor cope does the same by adding to the positive statement the negative clause and without the interference of agencies which are external to it it is quite clear that with both the fundamental point is that evolution is a doctrine of self-creation if and so far as there is intrusion of force or interference of agency from without evolution ceases the next thing that is apt to strike the reader is the thoroughgoing radicalism of both writers as to the sphere which they hand over to this process of self-creation to both alike the universe and all it contains is the sphere of this all-inclusive self-production all that is with the exclusion of nothing is the product of the interaction of the forces or energies intrinsic or resident in the primal substance professor cope says simply that the energy by which all is accomplished is a property of the physical basis of tridimensional matter and is not outside of it professor leconte is equally thoroughgoing he enumerates several grades of evolution he tells us that matter by combination recombination and therefore by purely chemical forces rose to higher and more complex forms until it reached protoplasm and in achieving protoplasm it achieved with it mobility and sensibility i e life under the guidance of this higher form of resident force matter went on until it achieved man and with man self-conscious reason under the guidance of this new resident force again it is to go on until it achieves society and finally the divine man throughout the whole process nothing comes in from the outside either in the way of energy or in the way of direction matter stands at the bottom with its resident forces or as professor cope phrases it the physical basis of tridimensional matter with its intrinsic energies and all that comes to be comes into being only through the movements of this matter by means of its resident forces it is not only a theory of self-creation but it is a theory of the self-creation of all that is and this means it will not fail to strike the reader further that evolution is in the hands of both these writers alike a philosophy of the universe it will not suffice to say that they or either of them look upon it merely as a theory of the method of creation of the mode in which differentiations of form have come into being it is presented by both of them alike as a theory of creation itself accounting for all things that are it is not merely that they omit to mention the higher directive power that may yet preside over the process of change and lead it to a preconceived goal it is not even merely that they render the assumption of such a power superfluous they directly and emphatically exclude it professor cope tells us plainly that in his mind there is an active exclusion of interfering agencies from without and professor leconte with scarcely less emphasis gives us to understand that it is nature which in his mind is through this process struggling upwards towards the divine plane from which it originated and not god who is moulding nature through the ages to his will to both writers alike evolution is a philosophy a philosophy which accounts for the universe as it is and from all that is in it without calling in any interference from without naturally both must have something to start with in this process of self-creation and for both alike this something to start with is phenomenally nothing other than matter in its primary qualities professor cope calls it indeed the physical basis of tridimensional matter but by this he only means that he conceives that behind matter as we know it there lies yet a simpler form of substance so that matter as we have it tridimensional matter is itself a product of evolutionary process 
but this simplest primordial substance is still physical and it is by its intrinsic energies alone that it has lifted itself first into tridimensional matter then into organized matter and then into reasoning matter professor leconte's ontology is no less really materialistic he gives us to understand to be sure that the plane from which all evolution sprang was divine even as the goal to which it tends is divine so that nature by evolution through infinite time has struggled upward to reach again the divine plane from which it originated but the thing evolving in its primordial state he identifies with what we know as matter in its simplest form endowed with or at least active only in its purely chemical properties the emergence of further and higher qualities comes later on in the process of evolution itself thus to identify god with matter or to call matter god does not appear to us to improve things the difference between a pantheistic and a materialistic ontology is insignificant in a connection of this kind in both alike it is from what we know as matter in its simplest form that all that is has come whence this primordial matter comes neither writer tells us probably both would speak of it as eternal the one may possibly take this in the materialistic sense and projecting his imagination backwards might expect to find nothing but the physical basis of tridimensional matter behind the other might take it in a pantheistic sense and conceive behind all changes what he calls god but god in the form of simple undifferentiated matter to both alike simple matter with its own intrinsic or resident forces is all that is and all that has come to be is its evolution i e its change of form under the action of its own intrinsic energies it assuredly will not escape the reader that this philosophical theory has no claim to be called science it is purely a priori construction who has shown professor cope his physical basis of tridimensional matter what scientific discovery has revealed to professor leconte that god is identical with primal matter and can be attained by primal matter rising through the operation of its resident forces back to the plane from which it started what discovery has shown him that protoplasm is a simple chemical compound that life is a product of chemical reaction that reason is modified life that god is advanced reason observed fact cuts no figure in these theories indeed the reader will nowhere find himself more emancipated from the trammels of fact than when reading such an imaginative construction as professor leconte's he may feel himself in the hands of a poet whose feet scorn the earth as he skims his opulent pages but he cannot discover the foundations of fact on which these great dreams are built nor can it possibly escape the reader that evolution conceived thus as an all-inclusive philosophy leaves little room in the universe for what the christian calls god even a materialistic scheme of evolution may to be sure comport with a deistic conception of god after all professor cope is not entitled simply to assume a physical basis of tridimensional matter so endowed that by virtue of its intrinsic energies alone it may unfold itself into a universe of order and mind we need still to ask whence this physical basis of matter and whence its wonderful powers enfolding within themselves the promise and potency of every form of life at the least we need a power outside and beyond the evolving stuff to make the stuff to give its forces to it and to set it going a primum movens in this sense and the most entire system of self-creation equally may comport with a pantheistic conception of god 
professor le conte may teach all he teaches as to the involution of all that is in simple matter and its gradual evolution from it up to god himself if he understands by god only the all whose varying manifestations the changing world is who is not only entangled in matter but is indistinguishable from matter and who is only as matter is and what matter may at any moment chance to be but it seems perfectly obvious that this evolutionary philosophy leaves no place for the christian's god who is not the god afar off of the deist and not the simple world ground of the pantheist but the living god of the bible at once above the world and in the world the author of the world and its strong governor who is not far from any one of us but yet is a somewhat outside and above us who is to the world and to man at least a power without them making for righteousness theism has of course no quarrel with second causes it would not substitute the direct divine action for the operation of the natural forces which god has made and which are real forces really operative just because he who can has made them such but neither can it permit second causes to be substituted for the living god who doth his pleasure among the armies of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth the universe was not self-created it was god that made it and without him was not anything made that has been made no philosophy the very principle of which is to account for all that is without god can possibly take a really theistic view of the world in this sense evolution is conceived by both of our present writers in this sense evolution as conceived by both of our present writers is therefore tantamount to atheism it has no room in all its thought for a living god for a god who not only is but who can and who does there are three general positions which may be taken up with reference to the doctrine of evolution which has so deeply affected modern thought as to the origin of the universe and all that it contains one we may look upon this doctrine as supplying an obviously true and adequate philosophy of being and treat it as furnishing a complete account of the origin and present state of the universe it is so looked upon by a large number of writers of light and leading thus professor huxley affirms that the whole world living and not living is the result of the natural interaction according to definite laws of the powers possessed by the molecules of which the primitive nebulosity of the universe was composed this position is of course tantamount to atheism and it is a matter of indifference to the theist whether it takes a materialistic or a pantheistic shape when mr darwin put forth his origin of species he was confining his survey to the origin of the divergent forms of animated existence he consequently postulated the existence of life and living forms moreover he wrote that book at a stage in his ever-shifting opinion as to divine things when he was feeling theistically he therefore spoke throughout it in a theistic sense and theistic language but that theory as held by him was essentially atheistic as dr charles hodge pointed out in a vigorous little volume but that the theory as held by him was essentially atheistic as dr charles hodge pointed out in a vigorous little volume was fully exhibited by his drift away from theism as recorded in his life and letters two we may consider the doctrine of evolution as a discovery by science of the process through which this ordered world in which we live has as a matter of fact come into existence and treat it merely as an account of the manner in which the universe considered as a cosmos has been produced and all the forms of being which constituted have been brought into being in this form evolution is not conceived as the ultimate account of anything it is made a secondary cause and implies a first cause working by and through it 
in this form accordingly it is not only not atheistic but implies and presupposes theism this is the form in which it is conceived by theistic thinkers and a notable example of its presentation from this point of view may be found in the writings of the late dr james mccosh dr mccosh speaks of evolution as demonstrated fact and yet harnesses it to his own theistic conceptions and makes it subservient to and indeed give way before even his christian supernaturalism when so dealt with the doctrine of evolution only supplies the christian thinker with an account of the mode and method of creation three we may look upon the doctrine of evolution as a more or less probable or a more or less improbable conjecture of scientific workers as to the method of creation and thus treat it as as yet only a working hypothesis suggested to account for the manner in which the universe has come into being and seeking now to try itself by the facts this has always been the attitude of the more cautious thinkers and in the progress of scientific investigation it is becoming now somewhat more common to find it adopted even by scientific workers themselves an increasing caution is observable in assertion perhaps we may even say an increasing doubt as to the universality and sufficiency of evolution in the new edition of his admirably restrained and sensible lectures on the bible doctrine of man dr john laidlaw points out how much less frequently now than a few years ago the claim is made for the evolutionary hypothesis as a universal solvent of the question of origins and he points out with this the effect of the change of attitude on the duty of the christian thinker in face of these recent confessions of the merely tentative character of the hypothesis he remarks the lesson for the interpreter of scripture is plain for him to hasten to propound schemes of conciliation between the mosaic account of creation and the darwinian pedigree of the lower animals and man would be to repeat an old and now an unpardonable blunder in a word the really pressing question with regard to the doctrine of evolution is not on the one hand whether it supplies in itself an adequate account of the origin of being and the differentiation of forms nor on the other whether the old faith can live with this new doctrine the first of these questions only raises in a new form the old problem of the atheistic philosophy which can not deserve a new discussion merely because it has put on a new dress the second of them opens only a purely idle speculation which is careless whether it deals with realities or shadows we may be sure that the old faith will be able not merely to live with but to assimilate to itself all facts the gold of fact says dr laidlaw finally will form at length the perfect ring of truth when the crust of suppositions which have helped in its formation shall be dissipated into dust and ashes meanwhile having a revealed account of the origin of the world and man which coincides with the instinctive beliefs of the human mind with the plan of human history with the faith and hope that are in god we need not be over anxious whether or not it can be shown to coincide also with every tentative supposition the only question with regard to the doctrine of evolution still is whether it is true and the only reasonable reply which can be given to this question to-day is that it is sub judice this is not equivalent of course to saying that it is not true we may hold it to be probably true and the only reasonable reply which can be given to this question to-day is that it is sub judice this is not equivalent of course to saying that it is not true we may hold it to be probably true and yet agree that it is still upon its trial and has not yet been shown to be true but we think it must be admitted that it has not yet been shown to be true and must still be ranked not as demonstrated fact but only as a more or less probable or a more or less improbable working hypothesis 
to be sure it is to be borne in mind that it is scarcely legitimate to ask anything of the nature of a strict demonstration or even anything like direct proof for a theory of this sort proof of a hypothesis of this kind can only be of a probable order and can arise only out of inferences from observed effects to causes and processes it is quite conceivable however that such proof might reach stringent validity and command assent its power to do so would depend on the ability of the suggested hypothesis to explain with ease and completeness all the observed facts by this we must mean something more than merely the possibility of wrenching some kind of explanation of the facts out of the hypothesis most of the phenomena of the universe could find some sort of explanation in the ptolemaic theory the probability of a theory thus increases not only in proportion to the number of the facts of which it supplies an explanation but also in proportion to the cleanness so to speak with which it explains them and its power to illuminate the connection between the facts and thus supply a basis for deduction by which we may one deduce from the terms of the theory all the known facts and thus as it were prove its truth and two deduce also new facts not hitherto known by which it becomes predictive and the instrument of the discovery of new facts which are sought for and observed only on the expectation roused by the theory it is quite possible by a combination of such results so fully and powerfully to commend a suggested hypothesis that the mind cannot resist the evidence in its favour it may with such cleanness and perfection explain all the observed facts with such power of illumination uncover obscure points and reveal new and unexpected elements of fact and with such certainty determine the facts subsumed under it and lead on to the discovery of others that we cannot escape the conviction that in it we have exactly the key that belongs to this lock and of course it follows that the more complicated the lock is the greater is the certainty that we have found its true key when we have a key which smoothly and cleanly fits every ward but it must fit the wards the simplest bent wire will often serve as a pick to open a lock and as it is not every key that will open a lock which is its own proper key so it is not every theory that will open a problem which is its own proper explanation there is such a thing as picking the lock of a problem as well as of a safe and science needs protection against burglary just as truly as banks but if it is true that not every theory which will provide some sort of explanation for the facts is the true theory to assume for their explanation it is of course a fortiori true that no theory which will not explain the facts can possibly be the true theory every theory proposed to account for a body of facts must run two gauntlets it must first of all be shown to be capable of accounting for the facts it is sometimes assumed that this is all that can be asked of it but all that has been so far shown is that should there be reason to believe that this hypothesis is the true one it may be accepted as such no facts stand in the way we must now ask what reason exists for supposing it to be the true account of the facts in other words we must now range it alongside of whatever other theories exist also capable of accounting for the facts and seek grounds for choice between them every thing is not true that is shown to be possibly true the race is to be run between the various theories which have been shown to be able to account for the facts the preliminary exhibition of ability to account for the facts is only conforming to the condition of entry for the race assuredly the prize cannot be claimed before the race is run merely on presentation of clean entry papers much more assuredly the prize cannot be claimed before the entry is itself approved if now it be asked what is the exact status of the doctrine of evolution it will be scarcely possible to affirm that it has as yet been shown that it is capable of accounting for all the facts 
precisely what is now under investigation is whether the facts as known can be accounted for on this hypothesis there is a widespread feeling abroad that if it can be shown that it is capable of accounting for all the facts this is the proper theory to assume in order to account for them and there is a widespread expectation that sooner or later in one form or another the evolutionary hypothesis will be shown to be able to account for all the facts but it is surely premature to say of it that it has already been shown to be able to account for all the facts and we can only think that enthusiasm has run away with good judgment when we hear it said as we sometimes do hear it said that we have the same proof of the doctrine of evolution which we have for newton's theory of gravitation there is an essential difference between these two cases in kind as readers of dr flint's paper on theology in the ninth edition of the encyclopaedia britannica will have lucidly expounded to them but apart from this it would seem to be too evident to require statement that the proof that evolution will account for all the facts observed in the sphere for which it has to account as yet lags it may be far from plain that it cannot account for all these facts it is as yet equally far from plain that it can account for them all it is in the effort to show that it can account for them all it is in the effort to show that it can account for them that a thousand scientific investigators are now engaged possibly this over-enthusiastic assertion that evolution has been shown to be able to account for all observed facts in the sphere of its assumed operation may find its explanation in part in a perhaps not unnatural extension of a happy experience in a narrower to an unwarrantedly broadened field the doctrine of evolution has served us we will say in our endeavours to unravel some exceptionally hard problems in the enthusiasm of this experience we declare it able to unravel all similar problems this is the natural history of all panaceas it is scarcely stringent logic however to infer from the fact that a theory can account for some facts that it therefore can account for all facts yet this is a logic from which advocates of evolution have not kept their skirts free a possible genealogy is made out for example for the equity which might possibly be accounted for on the doctrine of evolution it is then assumed that this is the actual genealogy of the equity and that evolution is the right account to give of it and then it is forthwith assumed that because evolution may thus possibly account for the equity it is also the true account to assume for the origin of species and genera for which we cannot as yet at least make out any genealogy which is at all consistent with the doctrine of evolution of the trilobites say or of the devonian fishes students of logic might obtain some very entertaining examples of fallacy by following the processes of reasoning by which evolutionists sometimes commend their findings to a docile world the treatment of the apparition of the fishes in the devonian age in professor leconte's manual of geology may be commended to such as a shining instance which unfortunately does not stand alone but we scarcely need a better example than that in hand because a possible genealogy can be constructed for a number of forms chiefly in the upper strata for which evolution might possibly supply an account it does not follow that evolution is shown to be the true account of the whole series of forms presented to us in the crust of the earth and it will hardly do to clench this somewhat violent inference by an appeal to the law of continuity and uniformity in nature which is rather too sharp a two-edged sword for evolutionists safely to wield at this stage of the investigation it ought not to be necessary to add that none of this is said with a view to giving the impression that the doctrine of evolution has been disproved it is not even intended to suggest that it is improbable we only wish to point out as clearly as we can that it is as yet unproved 
that its present status is that of a suggested explanation of the facts of nature which is as yet on its trial as to whether it can supply an account of these facts or not we may deem it probable or we may deem it improbable that it will ever be shown to be able to account for these facts it will certainly conduce to a clearer conception of the state of the case if he will recognize it according to our different judgments as as yet only a more or less probable or a more or less improbable conjecture of scientific workers as to the method and course of creation end of the present-day conception of evolution by B.B. Warfield